The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. What's up, everybody? Thanks again for tuning in to The Way BK podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here with Caleb, and we're going to be talking about Acts, the end of six, and the, the pretty much the whole thing of chapter seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're tuning in for the first time, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus and to be part of His kingdom and uh, further His cause in the world. So you can go back and listen to previous episodes if you'd like. We try to do each one where it's kind of standalone, so you can just keep listening to this one and pick up what you can pick up from it. Mostly, we encourage you to grab a Bible, pause this. If you're listening on a device and have your a Bible on a device, open that up. Open up a web browser. Do that. Grab a paper Bible. Most that's probably the best thing, so you can read along and consider the things we're talking about. We just want to show people the gospel, and we want to help people love Jesus and obey Jesus and do their life the way that He says to do it. So, besides listening to this, if we can help you personally, especially if you live here in Brooklyn, but even if you're elsewhere, just the other day we got a really sincere really open email from somebody asking for some help. And that's really encouraging to know there's so many people out there, even people we don't know who uh, who are trying to seek the Lord. So we're here to help. You can reach out to us on the web at thewaybk.com or you can connect with us on um, the WayBK on Facebook or on YouTube. Also, we've got, uh, it's a different name, but it's the we're doing the same thing, Brooklyn Bible Studies on meetup.com. We're not doing this just for fun. Mostly we enjoy having these conversations with each other. But more than anything, we'd like to help. And so if we can help you in any way, uh, let us know. All right, so Caleb, we're here in Acts 6. Last week we talked about there were some challenges, but the church navigated them. And even with some outside persecution and some internal difficulties, there haven't really been any devastatingly bad things happen yet Mm -hmm. so far. Until today. Yeah. Right. So uh, here we are. Stephen has been chosen by the disciples. He's one of the seven men chosen to, to deal with this problem uh, with neglected widows. But um, he's not just a, uh, a servant or of the church dealing with the food distribution. He's also a minister of the word. And we see in uh, chapter 6, Stephen's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs. The very things the apostles were doing, the very things that the that the Spirit promised through the prophet Joel would happen, these signs and wonders that, that the prophets did, that Jesus did. Now Stephen is also doing them along with the apostles, um, and he's doing them among the people. And so, of course, uh, again, there's opposition to what Stephen is doing. There's people who rise up. They want to argue with him. Since they can't actually withstand his wisdom and spirit, they start bringing charges against them. They uh, make false accusations. They stir up the people. They bring him before the council, and this story should sound a little bit familiar to us. Um, what they did to his teacher, they're now doing to him. Uh, and they bring these charges that that he's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God, uh, that he's speaking against the holy place, that would be the temple, and the law. And, uh, That's the they, Moses connection, right? Like yeah, law of Moses. the law of Moses, uh, or the Torah, and and they're sa- and they're saying that they've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
Now, these charges are really important because uh, all of chapter 7 is Stephen's response to uh, the charges. The first at least 50-some verses of chapter 7 are, are Stephen responding to the high priest's question, are these things so? Uh, so it's good that it's important for us to recognize what exactly the, uh, the issue is that's causing this great opposition um, and a couple of things come up to us right here. Uh, one, the insistence on the Jewish, uh, the um, specialness of the temple, um, having their holy place. And so anything that sounds like you're speaking against the temple, whether that be talking about things that Jesus said, that the temple would one day be destroyed, um, was, was for them cause for uh, blasphemy and, and conviction of, uh, of sin. Because their viewpoint would be, this is God's house. Right. You're speaking words against the place where God lives with us. So you're also kind of speaking against us and against God's place. That's right. It's blasphemy. Yeah. You know, you're actually talking not just against us, but against God. I think in their minds, that's what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the law. If you're going to say something that sounds like that Jesus is changing the customs of Moses, then uh, that's that sounds like you're trying to undermine our very, you know, founding documents, you know, like you, it'd be, it'd be akin to, um, an, a, somebody, an American speaking against the constitution or something, you know, this is like the foundation of uh, our nation. Um, and you're going to come and you're going to speak against the Torah, except that they believe that this constant, that this constitution, the Torah is not from men, it's directly from God. So yeah. it's an even greater, uh, level of, uh, vitriol that they have for, uh, Stephen because of this. Um, nonetheless, it is interesting that they have to kind of conspire to bring what seems like false charges against right. them. That's the, so that's the tricky part. It says it's false charges, but of course, when it seems to me whenever you read the whole of the New Testament, even look at some of the things Stephen himself is going to say in chapter 7, I can see why they felt that. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, so, I mean, Jesus said some pretty strong things against the temple. Right. Uh, even though the church appears to have primarily been gathering in the temple, that's where the Jesus followers were meeting in Solomon's porch, or in you know they were meeting at the temple for prayer. Like they were still at that the temple complex. Right. I guess that's probably a good thing to note. I, we may have said this in a previous podcast at some point, but the temple wasn't a church building or a a single. I mean, it was more like probably the size of a small shopping center or something mm-hmm. in our vernacular today. Right. right? So it's humongous. Mm-hmm. But anyway. In some ways, they weren't anti-temple, but in other ways, they definitely, definitely were mm-hmm. saying, hey, this is not the spot for God. Actually, we are the spot where God is now. It's not this physical location. And same thing with the law. I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it. Right. Like, I, I came to finish it out, in other right. words. So and it's, clear, it's kind of There's clearly some changes yeah. in terms of... The way that these Christians are behaving themselves, these disciples are behaving themselves, it's not exactly like the, some of the things that they give priority priority to are not the same things that the council and the religious leaders and the high priests are giving priority to. Yeah, and they'll even start moving further and further away from holding to the law, mm-hmm. or the church will at least, you know, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So nonetheless, this gives Stephen an opportunity to preach before all of these religious leaders. And it says that um, all who sat in the council saw his face like the face of an angel, and they're gazing at him. And the high priest asked them, are these things so? And Stephen then goes into a speech. And it's a long 
um, it's really a long history lesson, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind yeah. of Stephen recounting the history of the Israelite people, but he's very calculated in the stories that he tells and the emphasis that he gives to them. And, and uh, a couple of things really stand out, really are stressed in, uh, in this. The first is Stephen shows them that actually uh, he's, he is and he's not speaking against the temple. He is in the sense, he, it's not like Stephen has a vendetta against the temple. He wants, you know, something, uh, he wants the temple to be destroyed. Nonetheless, he knows that it is going to be destroyed. And because of that, he's reminding them that God isn't stuck in their, you know, in their temple. Like God is, it's not like if the temple goes down, so so goes their God, right? right. He's um, not confined to one spot. Yeah. And Never so has he, been. And so he tells them the story about how God um, appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, how God appeared to Moses in a bush in the wilderness, how God appeared in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in this tent that was a mobile tent. They could pick it up and take it down. And yet God could appear and dwell there. He was with um, Joseph when yeah, he was a slave in Egypt. That's right. That's right. He's helping Joseph while he's in Egypt. And uh, and eventually um, that leads to the conclusion uh, in chapter 7 and verse 46 that even once David wanted to build a temple, and Solomon finally did build the temple. Um, He says, verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So essentially, he is kind of saying to the Jews, you know what? Um, your obsession with the temple as being your, you know, place of security and your place of hope and your the idolatry really of the temple mm-hmm. um, is misguided because the Lord is not limited to the temple and He never has been and He's not going to be for from this point forward. So you need to recognize that God is greater than your temple um, and greater than even He's not confined to Israel. He's not confined to one space. Uh, he is a God who sits in, in, in his throne on heaven, who puts his feet, his footstool uh, upon the earth. He is a God that far transcends the temple. So that, so like you pointed out, there are two issues. One was this guy speaking against the temple. So that's kind of how he addresses that. He picks mm-hmm. out these stories, not every single story in their history, maybe not even what they would thought the most important stories, but he picks out these to highlight. Check it out. God was in Mesopotamia, he was in Egypt, he was in the wilderness in the bush, he was in the, all that stuff. So so that deals with the the temple thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about the issue about the law? Because that's the other thing, right? Is this man speaking against the law? Right. So there's a couple of things. One, he, he, he speaks about the law specifically in chapter uh, 7 and verse 38, where he says that Moses received the living oracles to give to us. Now, I'll just be honest. That doesn't really sound to me like Stephen has a low view of the law Mm. of Moses. That sounds like Stephen views the uh, law as pretty important. Living oracles, that is what God is giving them for life, uh, is is kind of the way he describes it. And here he describes, sitting there thousands of years later, he says to us, he even sees a value for himself even. That's right. That's right. So the law is for them. Uh, And then uh, later on, he'll say in verse 51, um, in chapter 7 and verse 51, he calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, 
And then he says uh, down in verse 53, you received the law as delivered by angels, yet did not keep it. So actually for Stephen, the issue is not, from Stephen's perspective, the issue is not that he has a problem with the law of Moses. The issue is that he has a problem with the people of God who have rejected the law of Moses and who have not kept the law that God has given. And, and the other way that he demonstrates this is, and you might think about for the Jews, um, the words Torah and Tanakh could sometimes be used interchangeably. They could use the Torah to refer to, the Tanakh is normally the word that the Hebrews would use to speak of the whole Old Testament. But sometimes the word Torah could refer to, could be used in that way too, to refer to the whole Old Testament, Genesis, all the way to Second Chronicles or to Malachi in our English Bibles today. Um, and and, and what Stephen does is he shows kind of the story of the Torah, the story of the law, and he shows how all throughout history the problem has never been what God has given them. The problem has been that they have resisted God and they have resisted God's law, the law that's been given to them all throughout. And uh, the two main places that he goes to show that is through the story of Joseph, how God um, was with Joseph but they were jealous, uh, the, his brothers were jealous of Joseph, this is chapter 7 verse 9, and sold him into Egypt. And yet even though they sold him into Egypt and were jealous of him, God was with them. He rescued Joseph out of all his afflictions. He gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, and uh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So even though they rejected Joseph, God did not. God stayed with him. God raised him up as ruler and redeemer. And God actually uses Joseph as ruler and redeemer to bring about the salvation of the very people who rejected him, his own brothers and his own family. Um, same thing happens with Moses. Uh, Moses is, is uh, chosen by God, and it says in verse 30, uh, in verse 27, that Moses comes to his brothers after uh, thinking that, that they would recognize that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But Stephen says they didn't recognize it, and actually... Um, when Moses confronted two brothers who were fighting, one's beating up the other, uh, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 27. And so God appears to Moses in the wilderness after Moses flees because he's afraid. God appears to him and sends him back to Egypt. And, uh, and when he gets back, he's rejected again um, by them. And even after God raises up Moses and, and uses Moses to punish Pharaoh and to deliver the Israelites. He, he becomes their redeemer, their ruler, their judge. They go out in the wilderness, and again, they reject uh, him in the wilderness. It says in verse uh, 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us a God who will go before us. Now remember, this is right after God gives Moses the law and says, one of the first commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, right? I mean, that's the first thing God mm -hmm. says to them. And so Stephen is, is calculated in his presentation of this story because he's trying to show them that the problem is not the law and the problem is not the temple. The problem is the people. The problem is you. You are doing just what your fathers did. Your fathers rejected all the prophets. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, Stephen says at the end of his speech, so you're being the same stiff-necked, uncircumcised people, and uncircumcised in heart uh, and and in ear. You're and you are actually resisting the very Holy Spirit that you claim to be following. Um, 
Which again, this is Stephen kind of showing them that actually your charges are not really fair. They're not really completely true. And actually the problem is really not me. The problem is you. Right. And it seems that what he's doing with this, especially Moses and Joseph, which takes up a bulk of the story, those two characters, is highlighting the parallels. He uses very selective language, language that's used elsewhere to describe Jesus. That's right. And it seems to me maybe, especially with the law thing, hey, I'm not against the Torah, the the story of the Old Testament or the or the commandments that are given, whatever. I believe in it fully. And the one we believe in, the one I'm preaching about as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus, he's the completion of that story, actually. I believe in the story of the Torah so much. I believe in the teachings of the Torah so much that I believe in Jesus. Yeah, there are a couple of places to see that. Um, he points out in verse 36 that this man Moses led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt. That's a huge emphasis in the book of Acts on what Jesus did. Um, It's also a a huge emphasis what Joel promised would happen when God would pour out his spirit. And so we've seen the apostles going out doing wonders and signs. So an emphasis on that. And then right after that, he says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So basically the story is, you did this to Joseph, you did this to Moses, you did this to Jesus. God has raised up all these prophets. You're always rejecting them. And yet God is always overcoming your resistance and actually using the deliverers that you reject, raising them up to actually redeem you and save you. And that's what he's doing right now with Jesus too. The same thing that he did with through Moses and he did through Joseph. He's now doing it again through Jesus. He's raised up his servant Jesus and you've become, you've murdered him and you've betrayed him. But if you turn to him, you could find that same salvation that the people could find if they would trust in Moses. And well, I was going to say what you just said. That's verse 52, right? Uh, you already quoted this earlier, but which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one. That's right. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but you didn't keep it. And I think the implication is they didn't keep it by all the bad things they did, worshiping idols, you not keeping it because you rejected Jesus and you killed him. Yep, yep. And, and, and so what ends up happening here is at the end of this sermon, the people are so angry with him. They're cut to the heart too, just like in Acts 2, except this time they're so cut to the heart. They're not looking for uh, repentance. They're looking to kill him. And, uh, and so this mock trial turns into an uproar um, in verses 54 through the end. They're grinding their teeth at him. And they're enraged at him. And you can imagine if you're Stephen, at least I'm tempted to think, whoa, what's going on here? This could be the end of me. This is scary. But Stephen, here's the irony. You know, the people that are supposed to have the security, are supposed to have the power, the position, the the, uh, peace that comes from knowing they're God's people, they're the religious leaders, they're actually quite insecure. They're not at peace. They're actually quite anxious. They're not um, at rest. They're actually quite angry. Meanwhile, Stephen is surrounded by all these ravenous wolves, and yet he's at rest, like he's at peace, he's secure, because he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Yeah. Well, obviously this is a really great sort of insight into the, the reason for the conflict between the Jews and the early church at this period. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that continuing. So just from a 
kind of, um, I guess, biblical studies perspective, this is a helpful section to see, oh, okay, so they really didn't like preaching about Jesus because preaching about Jesus for them meant the temple is kind of pointless and the law is not really the thing that's ruling us anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was was uh, shocking. But I guess what makes it makes me think of this is, okay, why were they so preoccupied with that? Why was it... Okay, they had seen Jesus perform miracles. They had heard him teach. They were seeing this movement that had begun that was based on eyewitness testimony that he had come back from the dead. This should have been all their hopes and dreams come true. It was all their hopes and dreams. As Stephen's pointing out, this is the whole plan. Like God's been laying this out. Every commandment he gave, every story he told us all throughout the scriptures was leading to this. This is what we've been looking for, guys. And you're rejecting it. What's up with that? You know. So I guess my thought goes to why were they so passionate to hold on to the temple and the Torah. And my thought is, one, they mention specifically in chapter 6 and verse 14, they were worried about the destruction of this place and the changing of the customs that Moses delivered to us. And I think this is really relevant for most human beings. We like having a place where we feel safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe it's a restaurant. That's where I go every Tuesday night or every Sunday afternoon or whatever. This is or this is my one cafe. I've heard about that other one, but this is mine. And I sit at this thing and I order the same thing. There's this a there's safe a safety. Place, yeah. yeah, it's a safe place. Or like, you know, you, you have your home. People like to just get into their home and you like your chair and you like all your stuff and there's just a things staying the same. And that goes along with my also... My people or my tribe, you know. Like, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Which that's, I guess that's how it's going to manifest later in the book of Acts mm-hmm. is that real tension comes is not only when we're speaking, a hey, temple's not important, Torah's not, it's all about... Also, the tribe is expanding. Mm-hmm. The Gentiles are welcome. Mm-hmm. And we're all, we're going to make a concerted effort toward that. That really, really gets them fired up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess that's the other thing is with these traditions, wait, wait, wait. I've been operating with this understanding of how to obey God and how to serve God and how to love God. Now you're telling me there's something different? Are you That that can't be true. Are, are you saying I didn't really love God before? Does that mean God's changed his mind? Yeah. And I think that happens a lot of times. If you're listening and you're irreligious, maybe you don't even believe there's a God at all, but you're just kind of curious about the Bible and maybe somebody sent you this or you've stumbled across it online or whatever. That's the disturbing part about the story that there was a man named Jesus who did extraordinary things and rose from the dead and preached that he's coming back to judge the world. That's not the way you think about things and your traditional way of viewing the world, you've got to reshape it to believe in the gospel. And similarly, the patterns that you have, the safe places that you have of how your life goes and where you put yourself and all that, that gets shaken up because if you're going to follow Jesus, a lot of things are going to change. And of course, the same goes for religious people. You have your safe spaces and how you think about things and uh, and your patterns of thinking and the traditions that you followed. And maybe it's even because you love God. But then you come across some things in Scripture where Jesus and his apostles challenge what you are doing or what your church is doing or whatever. And the I think the knee-jerk is always to do what these guys did. At least there's a temptation. Maybe right. not to be as vicious as they were. Right. But to reject it and push back and say, no, no, I can't... Like, uh, that can't that, be right. Right. And that would that would destabilize my entire life mm-hmm. and it would ruin everything. Yeah. And I think that's that that's it. To to come in contact with Jesus is to be confronted with sin, to be convicted of sin within us. And 
And whenever the Holy Spirit is at work and Jesus is being proclaimed clearly, that's going to happen. And if I'm not willing to be able to humble myself to, to, uh, uh, to examine myself, to see that and address that, I'm not going to be able to get the help and the healing that, he, that I need. Which is, which is why this is such a sad irony here at the end of the story. The people that should have been secure and at peace and at rest are actually ravenous wolves, infuriated, anxious, enraged, trying to destroy this movement. They look like animals. I mean, like you keep calling wolves for yeah, a reason. They really look like animals they, the way they treat this guy. And, and yet Stephen, who should be the one afraid, who should be the one insecure, who's lo- losing every, every sense of earthly security around him uh, right before their eyes, is at peace. He's at rest. He's calm um, because he actually has found the holy place. He actually has found the the law. He has he's found the one that Moses had written about, who could make him secure. And his eyes are fixed on Jesus and not on the crowd. And because of that, he's at rest. Yeah. And what's really really sad to me is he's not preaching to people who were the prostitutes, right, or the thieves. These are the guys in church. Yeah. Lead in church. And and what they didn't realize is that their view of how to connect with God or how to have a good life or whatever, how to be a good person, it wasn't a proper view. There was something missing. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't handle that, being confronted with something's missing. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's a little bit easier to say, hey, you're doing a really wrong thing. You need to stop. Yeah, good point. I do need to stop. But it's... I think even more dangerous if you're a pretty decent person, you just don't believe in God, which is actually a huge deal. Frankly, we, we think it is because we believe in God. But you could look at a person and say, well, he's a good, he's philanthropic, he's you know a hard worker, he's intelligent, he has a nice family, he just doesn't believe in God. Well, he's just, his life isn't complete. It's not that he's doing a bunch of horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Similarly, somebody might have some religious views. You might even you know call yourself a Christian and stuff. But actually, when you compare it to the scriptures, it's off. That's even more dangerous because you're just missing some things. Mm-hmm. It's not that you can clearly see you're in utter rebellion against God, even though actually we all are, but we can convince ourselves we're not, which is what these guys do. And if you don't confront it and you're not willing to admit it and you get the help from it, then it could end up leading to you opposing the very God that you desperately need for help. Yeah. So meanwhile, the ending was Stephen. So, yeah, so on the flip side of this, I think there's a lot for... Uh, for people who, who are, you know, faithful disciples, too, to think about here. One is um, Stephen said all the right things to them. He preached the truth to them. He did so in love. He Everything about this story is showing Stephen like Jesus, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, everything about this story. <laughs> Even I mean, his face, he looks like an angel. He looks like an <laughs> angel, right? Uh, so, so, you know, but, and I, I was thinking about this as I was reading the story. You know, both Jesus and Stephen are well spoken of. They're both filled with the Spirit. They both receive wisdom, grace, power from the Lord. They both do signs and wonders. Uh, and you're thinking, well, if he's like Jesus, like, surely this should end well, right? Um Except it didn't for Jesus. But it didn't for Jesus, right? And it's not for him either. They're both accused of blasphemy. They're both taken to the council. They both face false witnesses here. The eyes of the group are are on both of them. They're both cast out of the city. And they both end up praying to God for forgiveness for their persecutors and commit their spirit to God. But they both still end up getting killed and buried with loud lamentation being made over yeah. them. This, this is what happens to Stephen in this story is the same story of what happened to Jesus at the end of the uh, book of Luke. We're seeing 
uh, the life of Jesus um, living in his disciples. The, this is Jesus, Jesus' life being reproduced in, in his disciples. But what that means is that if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then I have to be willing not only to live with Jesus, but to die with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to recognize that if I want the glory that comes from being with Jesus, then I must endure the cross. I must endure the suffering as well. Suffering is an inevitable part of following Jesus. And we should expect that there's going to be resistance. There's going to be challenges that come not just within the church, but there's going to be challenges from outside coming in, at the church uh, Satan has forces within and without who are trying to, uh, to to destroy what God is up to, and we better expect there to be opposition um, it, when we when we are seeking to glorify God. Yeah, and we can also have confidence that even as Jesus was elevated from that, we're going to receive that elevation too, which is exactly what happens with Stephen. Yeah, and so so that's the other thing here that's just I think so uh, rejuvenating and just inspiring and empowering is, how, you know, Stephen looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he's at rest. And even while they're throwing rocks at his head and they end up killing him, I mean, he's praying for them. He's at peace. He's at rest. Why? Well, I think there's something to this. Um, you know, it's interesting this phrase uh, that that uh, that he is. Uh, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Often in the New Testament, we're going to see Jesus at the right hand of God, but normally he's sitting there at the right hand of God. This place he's standing, which which is interesting to me. You know, while Stephen is surrounded by all these people who have uh, falsely accused him and convicted him now of blasphemy against God and are condemning him to death. In a courtroom. In a courtroom, uh, an earthly courtroom. Stephen looks up and he sees in the heavenly courtroom, he sees Jesus standing up. When a lawyer is about to give an offense, the lawyer will stand up uh, to uh, as an advocate for their client in a courtroom. And you kind of see here, this, this earthly courtroom has condemned him to die, but you see Jesus standing up and um, defending him. As Stephen defends Jesus on earth, even to the point of death, Jesus is defending him before the angels in heaven. Um, reminds me of Jesus made this promise in Luke, right? That uh, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before the angels of God in heaven. And you kind of see that picture here of Jesus defending yeah. Stephen and providing for him. In this story, it's whoever stands up for me before men. I'll stand up before you in that's heaven. Right. That's right. And so, it, and I think that's important because, uh, you know, one of the things that I think happens, especially to new Christians and young Christians, um, when the first time you start to experience this opposition, the first time you start to experience persecution, the first time people on your job or people in your family or people in your neighborhood start to, you know, say things about you because you're a Christian or start to do things to you because you're a Christian or or uh, you know, first time that starts to happen, it can be really hard. So I think, wow, if I'm if I'm following God, why are these bad things happening to me? Well, actually, a closer look at the story of Jesus reminds us that that actually, um, when whenever I'm going to follow Jesus and if I if I'm going to walk in His way, no suffering's coming. But if I'll look at Jesus and fix my eyes on Him, the One who endured the cross for me, I can actually find the strength. Uh, in knowing that he's my advocate to be able to stand up and defend him on earth 
knowing that he will defend me from the only court in the only courtroom that will ever matter mm-hmm. um, in the end the the courtroom that stands when we stand before God on judgment day I think there's a lot of reassurance that comes from that uh, which which empowered him and gave him the courage to stay faithful even when they're more or less challenging him to recant or die you know right um, give it up or die but Stephen has no fear of death because he knows for him that death is not the end. Uh, how does how does it read here um, at the end of this that Stephen fell asleep? I was about to say uh, the same thing. Yeah. I love that. And of course, yeah. that, I mean, that's how the New Testament writers always talk about death because for a Christian, that's all it is. That's right. Death. And it's not a sleep. And it, it's a sleep. It's not a coma. Yeah. Like, it's a sleep. It's genuine rest. And you're going to get woken up. And it's right. going to be a whole different world. Whatever yeah. nightmares were happening before you fell asleep, you'll get woken up into a whole new world. Yeah. Last thing I'll say about this, you know, um, you still might be wondering, like, wow, if God's really, if this is really a movement of God, why are people getting killed? Like, why would, why would this, why would God allow such terrible things to happen to His people, even in this life? Um, but one of the things that you'll notice is that this actually doesn't stop the growth of the kingdom; it only spurs it on. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that Luke is telling us is that the the destruction of the saints. One of the early Christians, um, not not in Scripture, but in the early early writings of the church, um, said that the blood of the martyrs is seed, and and that's exactly what you see here with the story of Stephen. For example, um, I've often wondered how did how did how did Luke even know about this story? You know, it do, we don't see any evidence of Christians being present. But there is a detail that um, at the end of this that they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Um, and, of course, we know this Saul becomes later on. We're going to, spoiler alert here, um, this Saul becomes Paul, who, uh, who becomes a Christian. And I, I've often thought about, you know, when Jesus speaks to him on the road in chapter 9, he's going to say to Saul, one of the things is it's hard for you to kick against the goads, um, which is the idea of a stick or an ox goad that you would poke an ox in the right direction. Jesus is basically saying to Saul, you know, I've been trying to move you this direction to help you to see what you've been blind to all along. Um, but as, as I've thought more about that story of, of Saul, you know, as he spends those three days um, blinded, alone, waiting for Ananias to come and waiting to be baptized and waiting to turn his life over to the Lord, I often thought, what was going through his head? What's he thinking about? What's going through his mind? And, and, and now, after thinking more carefully about this, I'm thinking, wow, it, probably one of the things he couldn't get out of his mind was Stephen, mm-hmm. that man who he watched die with great approval, but who died with perfect peace. Yeah. While he was angry, while he was anxious, while he was uh, very disturbed, he leads this great persecution. And actually, so, so actually Stephen's death, in essence, will be one of the things that leads to Saul's life, Paul's life. But not just Paul either. As soon as he dies, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 is going to show, the, the church scatters because this great persecution comes out. Saul begins throwing people in prison, killing them, all this kind of terrible stuff is happening. But everywhere they scatter, they go about preaching the word. And everywhere they go, more and more people uh, are responding to the gospel. God never intended for his church to stay in one city. Mm-hmm. He intends for this to be an international, global kingdom. Uh, where people of every nation, tribe, and tongue are able to come to him. And so Saul, Stephen's death actually uh, inspires incredible, incredible growth in the kingdom 
of God, which is just a reminder for us of what the Bible promises, what God has promised from before, that all things work together for good to those who love God, even our sufferings. If we'll trust God, God can use even the worst things that happen to us. Um, he can take those things and he can put them together and he can make good come from even the worst things in life. Uh, and so if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, my death, my denying myself, my taking up my cross, the sufferings that I'm going to experience, it's not in vain. It's, like it's, not, it's not like it's just, it's just God making me suffer for a while for no purpose, for no reason except to make me miserable because we made him miserable. No, God, God is letting us die to ourselves. He's letting us take up our cross and suffer daily so that we can bring life to other people. So that we can bring, so that we can shine light into the darkness of this world, and people can come to know the love of Christ through our sacrifice as well. And in that way, we learn to be like Jesus even more. That's right. Disciples are becoming like their teacher. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We hope this text helps you. Go back and deep dive it. Test these things out. We may have missed some stuff. We're doing our best. Uh, feel free to reach out to us. Let us know if you got something you want to share with us for us to reconsider or just look at it and learn some stuff for yourself and love the Lord more and serve Him. We'll talk to you soon. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.